Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, we have a guest today, and we are so very excited to talk to him. Uh, he is someone that has been sponsoring and paying the bills for <laughs> the French Open and for Wimbledon coming up. And we are just very, very excited to introduce him to you and to just allow him to expound upon his his business as well as the sport of tennis. And Bryce, I know you and I have been very, very excited to talk to this gentleman. So I'll pass it to you to do a slight introduction, if you would. Absolutely. We are joined this morning by Paul S. Haberman from the law offices of Paul S. Haberman in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, the reason why Paul is just an ideal fit for us and an ideal guest this morning is because he specializes in sports law and has an actual personal investment and interest in the game of professional tennis. So we're excited to have him on to introduce you to him. You've been hearing us mention his name here over the last several weeks. But Paul is someone that we're looking to kind of bring in our camp so that when you have questions about legal things that happen in tennis, you know how sometimes we just kind of scratch our head and we're like, hmm, why did that happen? Right. We'll be able to bring Paul on uh, to give his opinion from a legal perspective, and hopefully we all understand uh, a little bit more. So without further ado, I want to bring Paul up and introduce him to the BOT family. He is now a member of the BOT family. Paul, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How's everybody doing? Good. No complaints, Paul. Doing well. How are you, sir? I, I cannot complain either. It's Saturday and, and I'm in good company. Uh, <laughs> as are we, as are we. And so, Paul, we want to just jump right on in, man. Um, we're introducing you to the BOT family. We'd love to hear a little bit more about you, about your law profession, how you got into law and how you got into tennis. So talk to us about uh, just all of that and give us a little background, if you would. OK, I guess I'll go chronologically. Um, Tennis uh, was something I grew up with in the household all the time, um, mainly, as, mainly as a fan, although my dad still plays tennis several days a week at uh, age 78. But uh, you know, when I was younger, what I, what I noticed was I was on the television a lot. So I grew up watching Yvonne Lendl and Jimmy Connors, McEnroe, you know, Yannick Noah, uh, you know, onwards to Sampras and Agassi. And, uh, on top of simply being aware that they're on the screen, whether or not I was focused, you know, we also used to have, as everybody did, they grew up in the 80s, a collection of videotapes of things that everybody recorded, you know, <laughs> just a television show or something. And uh, many times, my brother's especially scarred by this because he lost his uh, copy of Yellow Submarine that he had on tape as a child. Um, many times, despite what something was labeled, it would actually wind up being tennis uh, when we when we put it on, and uh, <laughs> it, it let us to remember the names on the one hand and and uh, certain uh, certain heartbreak on the other. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, let me stop you right there. You yep. you rattled off some iconic names from the '80s and '90s, but tell us who was your favorite? Who I mean, who were you always in support of? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think the most memorable for me, probably because he became something of a fashion icon during the you know, 
my would be, you know, wonder years or a little before that uh, was, I always remember Andre Agassi probably best. Uh, but I think the one that you know, I certainly uh, identify with or, or, or you know, even was a, maybe a bigger fan of, you know, uh, partially for an interesting personal reason I'll get to in a second was Pete Sampras. He just, uh, I learned a very important life lesson listening to him speak about his his way of conducting business, uh, the concept of the, you know, him getting in the zone was very important to him. That, that, that always registered with me. And it's always something I kind of have even taken into practice today, the concept of the zone. And I know it's not just him. There's other athletes that talk about that, but he really, that was really a big part of, you know, explaining how he was able to achieve what he was able to achieve. And as an interesting side note, my uncle, uh, even though I never particularly agreed with him, actually thought that I uh, looked like Pete Sampras at some point. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've gotten uh, several celebrity comparisons, and uh, that's one of the more interesting ones. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll take it, I guess, but uh, I'm not sure if I agree with it. So. <laughs> well, next time we have you on the show, we'll do video, and we'll let the, yeah, we'll let the audience chime in. <laughs> there you go. Okay, good. That's fair. So I could give you all three celebrities I've been linked to, and, and they, they could decide which one I actually look most like, and uh, hopefully Sampras will win for the purpose of the show. But. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. So, so did you play tennis at all, Paul? Uh, honestly, you know, it's a, almost an ironic profession for me now because I really wasn't that athletic growing up. I was always in decent shape, but uh, I never, outside of high school, you know, uh, gym, I never really particularly got into tennis. Uh, yeah, again, strange. Yeah, I was always a fan of tennis, uh, and uh, as we've discussed, uh, boxing and uh, basketball. Those are my big three. Of those, I think I played basketball the most, um, but, uh, you know, certainly grew up uh, mo most directly in tune with tennis, even if I didn't play it uh, because of what I was talking about earlier. Absolutely. No, I got into it late as well. Bryce was Bryce's uh, of the two of us. He's definitely the one that got uh, introduced to tennis early on in the family. So, OK, yeah. good. <laughs> Yeah, and, and well, and but then Isaac came on like gangbusters, and you know, <laughs> it, you know, Isaac has a very interesting story with you know, uh, and I know Paul, you're probably not aware of this yet, but you know, Isaac, how much weight did you lose, Isaac? Oh gosh, around what 150 pounds? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. A lot of it was a lot of it was attributed to tennis. So great sport, and uh, so happy I was introduced to it. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> yes, yes. And so, Paul, talk to us getting kind of wrapping back around on, on the law front. So okay. what got you interested in law? I mean, what what led you to that career choice? I think there was something about my personality and disposition that always lent itself to being an attorney one day. Um, mm. I always had sort of a mouth on me. <laughs> <laughs> sort of a sharp tongue, uh, an interesting way of phrasing <laughs> things. Um, and I guess it got to a certain point where it kind of where it crystallized into how do I get paid for these innate talents that I seem to have, whether or not they've always been positive or negative. <laughs> <laughs> I love that reasoning. I love that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I can't pretend that, you know, uh, I was a lifelong constitutional scholar or, or, or anything like that. It was always just like this fits me very well. <laughs> 
Excellent. Excellent. And, and, and just in general, because again, just trying to gather that background for our family here. Um, talk to us about just that process of going through the, the educational process, because we all know that becoming a lawyer is, 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 is one of the more demanding professions, if you will. So how was that entire process as far as going and getting your, your, your you know, having your law uh, degree and background? Uh, so, uh, you know, three-year process is standard unless you go for uh, something else like a business degree or an LLM with it, then it becomes more years. But, uh, yeah, I, I think the important takeaway, I mean, if there's any aspiring law students uh, among the listeners or what have you, uh, you have to know why you're there at all times because um, it, it is challenging. It, it is uh, not always uh, readily understood, especially in law school, why certain things are the way they are. And I think if you're just trying to go through it and not sure why you're doing it, um, I don't know if I personally would have been able to. And certainly there are several people in my class that didn't make it all the way through, uh, for better or worse, I guess, ultimately in their lives. But they even told us the first day, you know, look to one side, look to the other. You know, one of you is not going to be here. Um, (laughs) And they weren't wrong. So, wow. (laughs) My goodness. That's like tough. I said, I, yeah, I was just hardwired for it. So, <laughs> well, congratulations! Well, lucky for on us. Yes. Thank yeah, you, Brad. absolutely. <laughs> so, Paul, let's start jumping into some of these tennis questions we have. Um, and and I I want to start with this one because this is one that really kind of I scratched my head over last year. So, as you remember, last year when the whole war between, you know, Russia and Ukraine started, um, you know, there were certain kind of things that happened in the sport to try to alleviate tensions that would be on the tour. And, And a common, you know, thing that they would do is they would require the players of maybe the the aggressor country, right, that they couldn't play under their flag. They had to play under a neutral flag. And I know they utilized that concept in the Olympics, uh, as well as on the ATP and WTA tours. But here comes Wimbledon doing too much, excuse me, um, where (laughs) they decide to take it to another level. They decide to actually ban you know, the Belarusian and the Russian players from being able to compete. And I just remember reading Billie Jean King stating that, you know, this was a form of discrimination. When the professional tours were started, they were started so that the players could play free of these type of political type of situations. And that by banning these players, that it was a form of discrimination, a form of discrimination based upon nationality, um, where they came from, not necessarily because of their involvement in the war. Now, we do know the ATP and the WTA ended up deciding to strip the tournament last year of awarding any kind of ranking points, and that definitely hurt the the tournament. It hurt the players as well. But... Paul, talk to us about how Wimbledon was even in a position to make that call, and was that a call that should have been able to be made? Well, 
I'll give you a little historical aside about myself first that will not color my answer, but uh, interesting just the same in this conversation. Um, for the longest time, I was told my ancestry was one half Russian, one half Polish. But then I started reading some family histories and most of the uh, Polish uh, cities referred to in my family's history uh, are actually in modern day Ukraine. So technically, uh, I'm about 50% what is modern day Ukraine as far as uh, country of origin. Um, wow. But uh, having yeah. said that, um, you know, my takeaway from what happened with Wimbledon uh, was not so much that it, as uh, the All England Club, unilaterally made a decision. But it received uh, pressure from the government there to make that decision. Uh, I, I think if you're looking at it just as why did this one particular uh, facility or, or a major decide to make it, uh, that would be a little more head scratching because you know in concept it's a private uh, institution, but uh, they 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 had significant pressure from the UK uh, powers that be to actually do that and. Uh, yeah, and what's interesting about that is that even though they were compelled to do that, on the one hand, uh, at the same time, they're also, uh, you know, the All England Club is also, or the Lawn Tennis Association, relatedly, was also uh, the ones that ate the fines from, uh, you know, the ATP and the WTA that uh, ensued from uh, from instilling that ban, mm -hmm. uh, one million dollars and seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, respectively. So. Uh, it was almost, you know, in the abstract, if they had done it as a private club, as a sort of a political statement, it's almost, to me, it's, and I describe a lot of situations like this where people do things under pressure, uh, it's almost like do it then, now, apologize later. But really, it wasn't them unilaterally doing it. They, they, they gave their rationale at the time, or it gave its rationale, I should say, speaking about it uh, as an entity. But uh, it was really with outside pressure, which you didn't necessarily get as much at the other tournaments, even if, as you note, uh, players weren't allowed to participate under, say, a Russian or Belarusian flag, they were allowed to participate in the other ones. Right. And Paul, considering that the ATP and WTA kind of had, I guess, fines or what have you for Wimbledon, did, and we didn't hear about this happening, but could the players have actually filed a suit? against Wimbledon? Could the Belarusian and Russian players file suit against Wimbledon citing discrimination? Would that have been a possibility? That's, that's conceptually interesting. Um, because again, it, the mandate came down from the UK. So uh, whether they could, potentially they could in, in normal circumstances, I, I couldn't immediately tell you the venue if uh, they had to file it. But uh, I think it was more that it was a governmental action. Uh, is why you probably didn't see things like that happen as a result afterwards. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that, that, and I'm that assuming, yeah, and I'm assuming that the reaction from the tours kind of satisfied any kind of player concern, right? Because otherwise they could have filed something against the tours if the tours supported the ban. Yeah, that's what it felt. I, I think my takeaway from all the press and everything on, uh, regarding the ban is that, you know, the, the players were fundamentally supported. I mean, some of them came out and made statements, you know, pledging their neutrality or or what have you. But I, I think the general disappointment or uproar from certain segments or, uh, of the you know, tennis viewing 
population in the tennis community probably gave them some sense of satisfaction as well. I mean, I think to one of your earlier points, obviously the ratings points was, was you know, uh, wound up being harsh for everybody. And that may be why you're not seeing it according to recent news reports necessarily this year at Wimbledon. But uh, uh, but I think the, the overall feedback uh, to one of your points earlier, you know, it's supposed to be free from politics, sports. So, uh, and I think that, uh, that uh, Russian or Belarusian tennis players that uh, actually sensed that from the, that sort of reaction to their community were probably okay with that. And realizing at the same time that they're dealing with a, uh, uh, a conflict of the, of the type that hasn't been seen in a long time in that part of the world, and understanding that there's going to be some knee-jerk uh, and unfortunate reactions to it uh, outside of the immediate area where it's taking place. Very good. Right, right. So, so Paul, we're going to stick with 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 Wimbledon. At least we're going to turn to a Wimbledon champion, and that is uh, Simona Halep. Uh, oh, we all okay. we all okay. know about Simona because of her, you know, her <laughs> success against Serena Williams at Wimbledon. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, Simona has also been dealing with some trials of late, based on some failed um, drug testing. Or and 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 so maybe the question to you is kind of what 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 Talk to us about that as far as if a player gets cited for a, a, a drug, a failed drug test and are subsequent, subsequently uh, suspended. What what are the legal ramifications around that? Okay, so that's, uh, that's, there's a lot going on there, but uh, let me unpack it. Um, so she she was suspended. First of all, she's had the worst year ever in general between you know, the other reports uh, as far as her, her marriage and everything yeah, else. And exactly. Need for surgery and career and en- uh, season ending surgery, then followed by drug testing. Really, uh, feel for her on several levels this year, uh, I guess, pending the outcome of the uh, the drug inquiry. Um, the drug inquiry itself, uh, I guess the first question we want to answer is, who, who is conducting this drug inquiry? This inquiry, and there's a, an entire group um, known as the uh, International Tennis Integrity Agency that's essentially tasked with um, w- with uh, rooting out corruption on the one hand in tennis and rooting out uh, doping violations on the other. So anytime you usually hear about the Integrity Unit or the Integrity Agency, uh, and it does make the news a couple of times a year. Uh, it's usually because somebody has been accused of either match fixing or a doping violation. And uh, with Halep, in both instances, it's a doping violation. And um, and essentially, <clears throat> you know, long story short, the one she was actually caught with um, was a substance called Roxadustat, which I can't say I've ever heard of previously, but is essentially uh, involved with uh, key, uh, regulation of oxygen levels and uh, could be uh, used to impact metabolism and energy levels accordingly, uh, among its other effects. And that's what she was found uh, to have tested positive for, supposedly, um, after the U.S. Open last year. Uh, Then they've taken this whole tack of uh, irregularities in her, quote-unquote, athlete biological passport, which um, is more of a uh, study of levels as I understand it, uh, of certain substances throughout a course of time that might suggest um, some sort of other more gradual uh, violation. 
and uh, so she, and the reason that she, and the, the reason that she'd then be provisionally suspended, uh, which is uh, be the next point to point out here, is uh, she hasn't had a hearing on either of these yet. Uh, it's not apparently to me. It's not apparent to me why that hasn't happened, but uh, she hasn't. Uh, so then you might be asking yourself, well, okay, then how come she's not allowed to play again, uh, provided that she's able, uh, when the suspension's only provisional or, or interim or what, or however you'd want to phrase it? And the reason is that under the uh, uh, the integrity agency's rules, uh, to the extent that they believe a violation uh, might be something that would impact the integrity or the of the game in any way uh, they're not going to let the player participate until it's resolved so whether that's a drug violation here which again might might affect her energy levels or ability to uh you know um, metabolize oxygen you know keep her energy levels up or you know, keep her more level than other players on the one hand or if somebody has been suspected on the other hand of say something like match fixing uh, they're not going to let those people play if they suspect it's either a habitual thing or something that could impact the outcome of anything they're participating in or, or show badly in the integrity of the game, most importantly. Right. So, so Paul, I have a question on that one. So I kind of get why why they would approach it from, from that standpoint. So let's say Simona Halep is, she has her trial and she's cleared of, you know, this um, accusation. Because she's missed tournaments and have, I'm assuming, lost points during this period, right. does she get to retain those points that she wasn't able to play, uh, you know, defend while she was provisionally suspended, or does she just take an L on that? My understanding is there's a certain period of time she could retain them, and uh, but it sounds like by the time they get outside of it, uh, you know, she might be starting from square one again, such that I would say if she is cleared, best case scenario for her to get a favorable draw or really get back in the mix uh, would be, you know, the wild card, which is, you know, at the discretion of all the tournaments to, uh, in certain amounts. Because uh, you figure if she, if she lost ratings points at this point, you know, for the amount of time she's been out, she'd probably be out of the top 100, maybe even the top 200. That's been the better part of a year almost. It's, I guess she was suspended in mm -hmm. October of last year. So after the U.S. Open, uh, after the drug testing came back. So, but uh, it, it feels like, you know, just with an awareness of the regulations that the best remedy would probably be to wild card her. You know, you wouldn't expect somebody like her to go through qualifiers. Um, you know, unless, you know, we wouldn't expect somebody like her to necessarily rebuild on the Challenger or Futures Tour unless she wanted to. Um but you could expect her to get a wild card and, you know, not necessarily a favorable draw, but at least have an opportunity to more quickly than not regain what she had if she's actually cleared of the uh, two uh, violations that she's accused of right now. Right. And, Paul, what about the money? You know, what about the coins? Because think about it. Simona Halep was a top player. And not that she's, yeah. you know, struggling for, for, for any, any funding or cash or anything like that. But given the fact that she wasn't able to play or hasn't been able to play, that also is a lot of income that is no longer coming in. So if she's cleared, does she have any position to then file suit to say, hey, if I were able to play and I was a top five player, I would have likely had these results, thus resulting in this amount of money, which therefore you all should compensate me for. Is there something or position around that? 
Well, it's, that's almost a two-part question. I mean, uh, starting backwards, I mean, what you could have played for, that's, that would almost be regarded in some respects as speculative damages. You'd probably go on the lower end of those. Uh, the second, whether she'd be able to, um, that's an interesting question as well. And certainly that none of these tournaments are probably cloaked in immunity, but at the same time, uh, as long as they were able to articulate a good faith basis uh, for why it is that uh, they believed that she was guilty of these violations, I would assume they'd probably clear themselves um, unless some really awful findings were made, you know, uh, as far as them rigging her tests or fixing them or knowingly confusing them with another one or something of that nature. Uh, so I can't figure how she'd actually recover, uh, but uh, certainly I would imagine that uh, each would be able to be uh, uh, held into a, an appropriate court if uh, you know if we were found to uh, have no basis in reality and maybe even be bad faith in filing mm. in the first instance. I should note the most direct line. I mean, aside from monetary damages, the most direct line to even challenge the. Uh, any findings is the court of arbitration for sport. Uh, that's where you have almost every uh, every sports uh, international uh, anti-doping violations uh, litigated ultimately, or at least you have the option if you're uh, an athlete that's eligible to uh, be before it. And actually, inter interesting side notes about the court of arbitration for sport, not to go off topic, but uh, I, I noticed the other day that uh, Richard Gasquet Yes, 600th ATP tour win, and uh, mm -hmm. when I lecture on uh, about certain basics of the court of arbitration for sport, one story I always like to tell is about when Richard Ga Richard Gasquet uh, was uh, accused of a cocaine violation a number of years ago, and yep. uh, I don't know if you guys not remember this at all, but uh, I do. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> he took that all the way up to the court of arbitration for sport and was able to to demonstrate through experts or what have you that the positive test was actually traceable to somebody he was having some sort of you know intimacy session we'll yep. say with uh, mm -hmm. yep. and uh, that, yeah and i read that whole decision at some point i just found that incredible i mean that you know what a what, you probably hear that at first in the press and be like he's full of horse do but uh, <laughs> yeah, establish it, you know so and that that's exactly the way I felt when I first heard that. I was like, oh, come on, Michelle. Exactly. Right, Bryce? <laughs> exactly. Like, come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> I love that yeah. one. I mean, uh, all sorts of interesting decisions come out of there. I mean, you have, you know, Oscar Pistorius being allowed to use his blades coming out of there. You have recent decisions about Pastor Semenya and people like that uh, coming out of there. And then you have uh, Richard Gasquet with this particular concern, which is just humorous to me, although probably not humorous to him, but he still had a pretty long career and productive one. as <laughs> Yeah, he's even, he even had a good week this week. <laughs> yes, he did. He did for a second there. <laughs> so let's stay. We were talking about Simona, so let's stay with the yep. women. Um, okay. Now, we have seen progress over time on the tours and, you know, different things like equal prize money, which Venus and Billie Jean King and the like were all behind. But yes. we know that Serena was very involved in some of the more recent um, policy changes they made for uh, maternity leave for, right. for women right. players. 
um, when they come back, being able to have that protected ranking for a longer period of time. Um, now, I don't know if it exists or not, but I know in the corporate world, kind of like where Isaac and I come from, uh, a number of years ago, they started um, providing equal time for paternity time off right, uh, right. For, for men. Has that happened in tennis on the men's side as well? Or right now, is that just something that the women have? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think the short answer is no, at least nothing I've been aware of or seen. Uh, but the women's rule change was actually, uh, where they talked about protecting the ranking for a certain period of time uh, while somebody is on maternity leave is actually through the WTA specifically. Uh, it's not, you know, so that's why the women have gotten that. Uh, but on the on the men's side, it hasn't necessarily come up. Not to say, for example, that it's an issue that shouldn't be raised, perhaps through the Professional Tennis Players Association. Uh, but you know that group that's run by Djokovic and uh, the fellow from Canada, whose uh, name's eluding me right now. Um, Aspasil. There we go. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, certainly, if it's an issue that becomes big enough. Uh, for a particular male player one day to raise it. I mean, it's not like they don't have children. When Djokovic's kids are all there when he won uh, Roland Garros the other week. Uh, you know, we know Roger Federer's wife, who's also a tennis player, essentially stepped away to uh, raise children after a while. Uh, but we don't hear how it impacts them, whether they really want to pick up and leave or whether they bring the camp with them, you know, including the children, which happens at least sometimes, it seems. But uh, what if one of them actually wanted the option to be off the tour for a time without it impacting their ranking? I don't, I don't feel like anybody's raised that hard enough that I've seen uh, to really uh, bring that to a boiling point. But certainly an interesting issue, uh, just the same. You know, you could Absolutely. say nobody's making them compete, except that they are, because otherwise their ranking will take a tumble as of right now, because the, the men are necessarily not in the WTA. Right, right. Well, we're, we're at least very happy that they have improved the positioning around the maternity leave. I think that, yeah, paternity leave is, is definitely something that uh, uh, will progress, I think, as it has overall. But I'm so very happy that they have uh, improved the maternity leave uh, positioning around that. That's, that's, that's so important. Um, and, Paul, we're going to round this out with, with one last question for you. And Good. this, of course, Good. is related to... Uh, the recent uh, Roland Garros uh, championships that we had here, um, big news that came out of there was an unfortunate incident where one of the players uh, in doubles um, hit a ball towards a ball person, a young ball 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 girl, and uh, she right. wasn't prepared for it, and uh, it startled her. She got hit with the ball, and unfortunately, you know, initially the team got a warning. But after some um, interesting debate uh, <laughs> with the umpire and their opponents, uh, the decision was to uh, default uh, that duo and all the prize money was taken away. So talk to us about that particular situation and what are the guidelines as it relates to defaulting a player? Because we've seen that with Djokovic in the U.S. Open. Uh, right. We've seen that on different occasions. So. Kind of talk to our, 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 our listeners and family here about what are some of the guidelines around the default process? Okay, so uh, the interesting thing uh, with defaults is that 
They're, they're not a mandatory thing. Uh, the way it's phrased, let me just read the opening sentence uh, from the code here. It's, the referee, in consultation with the Grand Slam supervisor, may declare a default for either a single violation of this code or pursuant to the point penalty schedule set out above. And uh, one of the one of the uh, violations, and the one that's pertinent to uh, this tournament, uh, Roland Garros, was abusive balls. Um, which reads, players shall not violently, dangerously, or with anger hit, kick, or throw a tennis ball within precincts of this tournament to site, except the reasonable pursuit of a point during a match, including warm-up. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's an interesting definition when you think about it. Because it also goes on to note, and you might recall from the tournament, uh, doesn't, require, doesn't that definition seem to require some intent? But it also says, for the purposes of the rule, abusive balls is defined as intentionally hitting a ball out of the enclosure of the court, hitting a ball dangerously or recklessly than the court, or hitting a ball with negligent disregard of the consequences. And you have to figure either recklessly or negligent disregard is what they hung their hat on at Roland Garros, because it didn't seem like anyone actually thought that there was any intent or even right. uh, anything at all behind it, except maybe the other team that, was, that to your point, was kind of lobbying maybe more than they're supposed to, since there's nothing in the rules that say that uh, there should be any input from the other team or the other <laughs> players. So, and let me tell you one other unfortunate side effect, uh, two, two defaults. And I'm not, I don't believe this played out the same here, I'm not, but um, if somebody is defaulted uh, from the tournament, uh, there could be all sorts of other side effects such as losing ranking points uh but fortunately for the doubles players here to the extent that they played singles as well uh it wouldn't necessarily follow the doubles partner if only one party was uh guilty of what led to the default or liable for what happened to the uh that led to the default so but uh so uh, that's a small takeaway depending who you're playing with you wouldn't for example want uh let's, let's take a hypothetical coco goff and jessica pagula are pay, playing in roland garros and i think they did uh, you know if jessica pagula has a tantrum and hits a tennis ball out into the stands and uh knocks some fan unconscious you know you wouldn't want that counting necessarily against Coco as well, who of course is always a late rounds uh, favorite, as Jessica Pagula is. I'm just picking one versus the other. Right. This hypothetically, you wouldn't want to counting against both players. That wouldn't really be helpful, and it'd probably have a chilling effect on more uh, highly ranked players even participating in doubles if you did that. Right. No, that makes sense. That, that makes a lot of sense. And wasn't it that? Um, the lady that hit the ball, didn't she lose her money and points from all events that she was in? I was it from uh, from all events in the tournament, uh, which yeah, was in yeah. the tournament rules, correct? Right, okay. So, okay. Because okay. I know that she ended up playing mixed doubles with, and I forget her partner's name, um, but I believe they won the mixed doubles title there, though. That's was interesting. That, wasn't that the partner though? 
Oh, was was I, I thought it was actually the young lady that hit the ball because they were talking about redemption. They kept talking about the whole redemption piece at the final. But uh, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it was actually the partner versus. Yeah, I thought I had read that the, the partner was going to be allowed to continue. And I think she was a mixed doubles. That okay. sounds more appropriate. Yeah. yeah I can't say whether I know the answer right there, but that sounds more appropriate that one would have been ejected, one would have been allowed to continue. That's consistent with what's in the rules. Gotcha. About, uh, liability. So. Wow. So, yeah. well, you know what? This has been great because we've never really had this on the show before. You know, Isaac exactly. and I always come up with our theories <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> on, on why things happen. But it's great to have somebody who's actually gone through the rule books and and can tell you, no, this is actually what the rule states or this is legally what can or or cannot happen. Uh, Paul, would you mind just taking a, a moment? I mean, we have promoted your law office uh, a couple of times so far. You know, share with our listeners, you know, what your law office does and how th- they may utilize your services. Certainly. Um, so, uh, you know, in addition to uh, sports law, which is uh, the reason for the season here, uh, I also engage heavily in business litigation. Uh, which is basically, uh, you know, business owners or individual businesses suing each other, uh, as well as health law, which deals heavily with medical professionals. Uh, but again, uh, of interest for the listeners would probably be sports law. And to that extent, I, I've handled a lot of transactional work in sports law, you know, contracts between uh, agents or managers and their athletes or promoters and their athletes, depending what sport we're talking about. Uh, sponsorship and endorsement deals uh, for athletes, NIL deals for you know, amateur athletes is uh, certainly a big thing in uh, my sphere right now. Uh, and uh, he- hearings and as necessary litigation uh, involving uh, athletes or, or or their handlers as well. I'm currently involved in a lawsuit involving a boxing promoter at that point and, uh, and one of his fighters. And uh, I've been involved in several other situations like that that necessarily haven't uh, had to be filed. But, uh, you know, I'm there, long story short, for, you know, the entering into the the agreement and the breakup of the agreement as need be. Um, And so are the other attorneys that I work with on these matters. Okay. Excellent. So excellent. Isaac. Before we wrap up, any final questions that you have for for Paul today? Oh no, just very very happy to 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 get Paul on, have these uh have this discussion, and uh, just really appreciate you, Paul, for all the support that you have been given giving yeah. giving us, and uh, we just really really appreciate having you in the family. I'm gonna throw out a plug real quick, family. You've heard uh, you've heard it in the advertisement, but once again, Paul S. Haberman. Give the man a call if you need any any legal con- uh, consultation. And again, number is 201-564-0590. So give Paul a call, y'all. He is he is legit. He's a good brother. And uh, we love having him as a part of the family. Oh, thank you both. And I should just note, happy to come back and do it. And uh, certainly with, with players such as Nick Kyrgios coming back on the tour, <laughs> as long as he stays healthy. <laughs> There should be some more to discuss. <laughs> yes. There will be. There will be. 
Uh, and we'll and like we said, next time we'll have you on video so that we can do the, the celebrity comparisons. Yes, yes. <laughs> just, just as a warm up, the choices are, are Pete Sampras, Freddie Prince Jr., and Vinny from Jersey Shore. Those are the three I've got over the course of time. <laughs> okay, nice. they are all in the same range. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Paul, uh, for coming on, and you Thank know, you guys. we look forward to having you on again. To our listeners, uh, this is what we do. We bring you different stories uh, from the sport of tennis, and uh, this was a new one for us, and we're, we're glad to bring it to you. So on behalf of the podcast, this has been your boy Bryce. And this is your boy Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Everyone, stay well. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.